Hello, this is Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance hosting once again the Building Local Power podcast. Welcome back to another episode. Today I'm speaking with Vanessa Williamson, a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about taxes today. And one of the reasons is because you wrote this book that I think is um, an eye-opener and should be, and it's highly recommended for people to open. It's called Read My Lips, Why Americans Are Proud to Pay Taxes. Um, Can you just say maybe a word about why you wrote an entire book about this subject? Well, I realized in my previous work being on the Tea Party that there was a lot of work looking at what people on the far right think about taxes, or at least you know, sort of the sort of extremes of the political spectrum a little bit, maybe. But we didn't actually know very much about what most people think about taxes. And I also noticed in trying to look into the question that we tend to ask Americans the same questions over and over and over again about taxes that rich people pay. We very rarely ask about taxes that most people pay. So I thought there was really room for um, a much broader and also, in a sense, a deeper study of what Americans think, not assuming that they have particular policy knowledge, but actually sort of delving into their experience of tax paying and how that shapes their knowledge. And so the, what we're going to be talking about, a lot of the opinions, you didn't just do studies. You really did a lot of in-depth research over many years to try and just briefly, why should people think that you have a good handle on what Americans think about taxes? Yeah, so I spent about six years studying the subject, uh, looking at what Americans think about taxes in surveys, in interviews, uh, at the voting booth when they get to vote on state and local tax measures, um, in public statements, in letters to the editor, uh, and basically any handle I could get on an opportunity where individual Americans got to share their views on taxation. You convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just know that this is a methodology that I've seen in other books as well that, that um, really tracked well with um, getting at a true understanding, not just someone thinking on a survey, I'm just going to click a button or something like that. Um, I just wanted to get a couple of quick facts. Um, I think many of us remember that 47% figure from the 2012 election suggesting that 20, that 47% of Americans just don't pay taxes. Um, who pays taxes in the United States of America? The 47% statistic is accurate as far as it goes in the sense that 40% of income tax filing households do not have a net federal income tax liability. Right. That's a lot smaller, though, than 47% of Americans. Uh, in fact, because we pay many, many kinds of taxes, including income taxes, payroll taxes, sale taxes, gas taxes, property taxes, and many more, uh, almost every, not just American, almost every resident of the United States, almost every person who goes into a, co- a coffee shop and buys a cup of coffee pays taxes. So we're all taxpayers by any reasonable standard. Uh, but there's a lot of attention on the federal income tax, and so sometimes people think that if you don't pay much or you don't pay anything in federal income tax, you don't pay taxes at all. And that's just not true. Well, one of the things that I found particularly interesting with some of your interviews was the language associated with paying taxes. And I wrote a few of them down. Um, People viewed it as an important civic duty, um, a duty just like voting, an obligation linked to political voice. Um, Did any of the interviews really struck you that you still think about in terms of how they viewed paying taxes? Yeah, this was something that I wasn't expecting, honestly, although the survey data would actually support it, but I thought those were weekly held opinions. Um, 
again and again, when I ask people, you know, is it your responsibility to pay taxes or is it okay to, you know, hold back a little bit here and there, especially because the government's so wasteful or something like that, um, people said no. People really do see in America tax paying as an important civic commitment because they see it as a symbol of being an upstanding citizen, of being the kind of person who contributes to your community. And, you know, I, I was struck by it over and over again all over the political spectrum. I remember speaking to a former Marine who's actually a very uh, politically progressive person, and I asked what taxes are, what he thought of when he heard the word taxes, and he said, oh, well, it's the cost of being an American. And, you know, for someone who's quite obviously made a much larger commitment, frankly, to uh, America, it it really struck me. And I remember I talked to a mailman who was a very conservative guy in Ohio, and um, I asked him, "So, so how do you feel when you're paying your federal income taxes? A very standard question that I would ask. And I was expecting, you know, uh, an opportunity. This was an opportunity to rail against government, but instead, you know, he he talked about it as as part of his duty, as part of his responsibility. You know, he was upholding a responsibility that was his job. So I was really surprised by how overwhelming the American commitment is to the idea of tax paying. That tracks with um, my experience, and I have a somewhat unique experience because I have a business that has um, income that is not withheld. So I have my job with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and then I also run a business doing sports photography for a number of clients. And I had a really good year one year, and the accountant says, Chris, I'm sorry, but you had a really good year this, you know, this previous year. And I had to write a check that was very large to the federal government in April. And, you know, for me, I sort of knew it was coming. I didn't know it would be that large. And one of the things that you say in the introduction really struck with me, which is the value of what I'm getting. And I love this country. I've traveled around the world a fair amount. And um, and you talk about how, you know, it's hard to place a value on what people are getting for their taxes, what the value of winning World War II was in terms of in relation to veterans benefits and things like that. And, and I just think that that really struck with me because, um, you know, it is painful. I would have rather spent that money on something else, probably a, a brand new lens for my camera. But um, um, but it was uh, it's something that really, you know, I can't describe the amount of value I get. And I would pay more if I had to stay here. If they said we're going to double your tax bill or you're going to leave the country. I would not be happy, right? But I would pay twice as much to stay here. So I don't. There's just some thoughts that I have about about that sort of, um, you know, the sim- similar sentiment. Well, you know, what struck me is is how many Americans hold views that are along those lines, but they think they're alone. They think they're the only one in the world who holds that sentiment. And you know, it's not always quite as you know that is a very generous sentiment that you're expressing, right? But uh, the idea that you know it's your job to give something back and that you are grateful for things that this country has given you, Americans really believe that. Um, and, uh, you know, and they believe it both uh, widely in the sense that, you know, 95% of Americans will agree with the idea that it's your civic duty to pay your fair share of taxes. But they also agree with it deeply in the sense that I didn't seek out people's civic responsibilities when I started this. I actually didn't. I was cynical about that. Um, I thought that was not a widely held view. But people bring it up when you talk to them. And one way that you can see it is actually in the amount of anger people express about tax paying, because what they express anger about is not typically the amount they themselves pay, but the idea that someone else isn't paying their share. And that is just the flip side, right? If you think you're doing your responsible act, right, the idea that someone else is skipping out is really upsetting.
Right. And that brings us to, in some ways, what why this is so relevant for the audience that that is listening to this as we, tr- we traditionally conceive of them. Um, we talk a lot about monopolies. And I think we have a sense that monopolies, for instance, are not paying their fair share. AT&T, Verizon often seem like they go years where they don't pay any income taxes. Um, trying to be more specific about it because I'm sure they pay some taxes. I hope they pay some taxes. Um, but it's... Uh, it's important to to think about these feelings um, because when we're proposing, as we often do on this show, government programs to be able to rectify some of the failings of the marketplace or the failings of previous government policies, um, we need to power the government with something. One of the things that I've heard in terms of a relation, a solution to uh, monopoly would be government having more independent research that's not industry funded. Well, that would cost a lot of money, which would probably come from taxes. So ergo, <laughs> taxes are an important piece of the conversation. We believe in economic opportunities for everyone and recognize that some households, you know, whether due to historic marginalization, bad luck, or even some bad choices need some form of help. So all these reasons are why we need to pay attention to the revenue uh, coming in. But one of the things that I've heard from people that I respect in response to some of this is, well, if people believe so strongly in paying taxes, why do we see such resistance to it? And in fact, it seems like if you want to attack Democrats, you attack, the, you attack them for the way they spend taxpayer dollars and the fact that they're willing to raise it. Republicans have run for um, decades on being a party that's, that will only ever lower taxes. And in fact, the one president that was a Republican in my lifetime who was somewhat responsible on the deficit, George H.W. Bush, is considered a joke and a terrible Republican because he dared to raise taxes. So how do we square that circle? Yeah, so I think that uh, a common mistake... Uh, in sort of the way that we talk about politics is to imagine that our political outcomes represent the views of most people. And we know that that's not true when we stop to examine it. It's not true on taxes. Uh, in Most Americans uh, are not particularly upset about the amount of taxes they pay. In fact, if you ask people what bothers them about taxes, you'll get somewhere, I don't know, 8 or 10% of Americans say the amount they pay. Two-thirds of Americans say that they're angry that the wealthy or corporations are not paying their share. Right? And what did we get? We get a tax bill that cuts taxes at the top and doesn't give much of a break to anyone else anyway. Um, so why do we see that? Well, we see that because our government doesn't do a very good job of representing majority views. Partly it was designed not to do a good job of representing majority views. right? But it's no less the case that Americans want sensible gun control simply because we don't get it. Right? It's not, you know, people have strongly held views about, for instance, raising the minimum wage. That's not why we don't get it. The problem Uh, in our politics is not best explained by an individual level failure on the part of voters. It is best explained by a series of systematic failures in in how we aggregate votes, in how we channel the voices of not very powerful individuals into very powerful uh, institutions. Does it also have an effect that most people seem to think that the wealthy actually pay far less in taxes than they do. And we can talk about fair share and where that's set. But I I wonder sometimes when someone like me goes around saying there's all these loopholes, I feel like actually people that are listening sometimes, they they overestimate the number of loopholes and the amount that the wealthy pay. Uh, A majority of Americans, in fact, a strong majority of Americans uh, support progressive taxation, right? They think that wealthy people should pay more than lower income people, and they think that they should pay more as a percentage, not just as a dollar amount, right? Uh, But among people who support a flat tax, uh, a fair amount of that support comes from people who think a flat tax would raise taxes on the rich. Now, why? 
uh, previous survey work hadn't been able to figure this out. I looked at it in interviews, and it, it looks pretty convincing to me that one reason for that is because people know that taxes are nominally progressive. The federal income tax is a progressive tax, and the, the rates go up. But they think it's undermined by loopholes, exactly as you say. So they think, well, if we had a flat tax with no loopholes, maybe we'd actually get those, those rich people who have managed to lower their tax responsibilities to zero in their minds, right? As a whole, the sort of upper income people, if you're talking about the top 20% of people, actually do pay quite a lot in taxes. Um, as a whole, our tax system is more progressive than many tax systems in Europe because we rely heavily on an income tax. Um, and that's true right up to you get to the very, 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 very rich, right? So you're $60 million or more a year. Well, okay, there it's actually begins to become hard to even measure what someone's income is, right? Um, but for the majority of people, the tax system is indeed progressive. You make more money, you pay more money, and you pay more money as a percentage. Um, but I think it is a problem that, especially on the left, we talk a lot about loopholes and, oh, loopholes are bad. And of course, loopholes are bad, but they don't actually undermine the progressive tax code. And I think that sometimes uh, we're actually doing ourselves a damage in terms of talking about uh, who pays what when we focus so strongly on loopholes. So your office is here in Northwest Washington, D.C., uh, a section of D.C. associated with fairly progressive liberal ideas and that sort of thing. I'm sure being in Washington, D.C., you know a lot of more liberal type folks. Do these findings about people's willingness to pay for government, and in fact, the number one complaint basically being that other people aren't paying their fair share, do you feel like you're... Um, a crazy person among a bunch of people where, I mean, on the left, I think there's a broad idea that most Americans are individualistic. They hate government. They don't want to deal with government at all and that sort of thing. And I agree with you regarding the need to uh, improve the outcomes of government. And I agree with your assessment as to why that often doesn't happen. But it does seem to me like the left is convinced that, and, and the right also that Americans simply don't want government <laughs> at all almost. So I think that it's fair to say that Americans are... Um what's called philosophical conservatives and operational liberals, right? So if you ask people, do, do they think government should be small? They tend to say, yes, yes, that's right. Uh, but if you ask them, should government um, invest in, in more in things like Social Security, Medicare, education, helping the poor, people say yes, and they even say they'd pay more for it, right? So in sort of broad strokes, Americans do like this sort of language of individualism. Yes, that's absolutely true. But if you ask them on any specifics, well, actually, they like a really strong welfare state, right? Um, and I think that... There is a tendency, especially, you know, in, in the kind of place that I live, to blame bad political outcomes on sort of a failure of individual people and to sort of denigrate the capacity of average Americans uh, to understand politics or to engage in politics. And I think that's a real, and that's the way that I feel like I'm shouting in the wilderness when I say, actually, I went around and interviewed and surveyed Americans <laughs> as close to a representative group as I could manage. And I came away uh, impressed and, in heart and heartened. Right. Many people are quite reasonable when you talk to them face to face. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's not, it is absolutely not reflected in our politics. It is true. Right. The thing that surprised me the most in your work and research was the extent to which I feel that people who feel that they don't pay taxes or they don't pay enough taxes feel like their political voice should not matter. Um, I think I would argue that their voice does not matter, and I'm frustrated with that. I want to find ways to fix it. They weren't arguing, my voice doesn't matter because I'm marginalized. They were arguing, I don't pay much in taxes, and therefore, maybe my views should not matter as much. I, I found that very disappointing in some ways. Yeah, so uh, a side effect of uh, the sort of focus nationally uh, on the federal income tax, which uh, is a tax that is progressive and uh, low or negative for low-income people and high for at least most of the upper income spectrum until you get to the very top, 
the focus on that tax is the thing that qualifies you as a taxpayer leaves many low-income people feeling they don't deserve to be heard, right? And I heard this over and over again in interviews. I'd be talking to a lower-income person, and they would say, oh, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to talk to. I don't really pay taxes. And sometimes this was with someone who had only a few minutes earlier been talking to me about how hard it was to get the money together to cover the sales tax on their groceries. You know, and if you're talking about taxes in terms of hardship imposed, the $2,000 we take out of the income of a person making $20,000 is infinitely more hardship than the taxes I pay, which are, of course, higher in amount and percentage, but not higher in actual uh, cost. Well, you make this point very well, I think. And I was impressed the extent to which it seems almost every American that has a is from a household that's struggling this way can do math immediately in their head in the sales tax, right? I mean, these are people that are calculating out to the penny what the sales tax will be on these various items in their carts, um, to the extent that I'm just glad that I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, I mean, that was, it's especially in the states that uh, you know, I, I love taxes. I'm in favor of taxes. My mug in front of me right now says, I heart taxes. It, it is true. But there are two kinds of tax I don't like, obviously, the poll tax and the tax on groceries. Because you can't talk to poor Americans at all about what it's like to go to a grocery store and not think that it's shameful that we're taking a month's worth of grocery money out of the budget of people who are barely making ends meet. And that's, you know, the amount of sort of pain that's involved when people have to think to make those calculations in their head, as you say, on their way to the counter so they don't have the embarrassment of having to put things back. I, that's just unconscionable to me. And connecting to the, the previous thought then, and yet they still walk away thinking, I don't pay taxes. And therefore, you know, I'm not as important, perhaps, as someone who pays a lot of taxes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a real, a real mistake that we make uh, taxes that are very expensive for many people, sales tax, payroll taxes, so invisible, uh, and make the federal income tax so controversial. It really, uh, I think, uh, misleads people about the distribution of tax responsibility in this country. For people who want to read the book, this is the kind of prose that you'll get summing this up. Because taxpaying is seen as an emblem of civic worthiness, denying the poor the status of taxpayers has the effect of denying their political standing. Classing a large percentage of the populace as a kind of second-class citizenry is is genuinely toxic for democratic norms. It's really worth noting, as for people who are listening to this show, who in many cases are involved in their communities of how to build movements and things like that, I just feel like it's really important to address those sorts of issues because we often wonder how uh, how these people aren't more politically active, given the role um, that government programs play in their lives, the way that these programs are under threat. I think this is a part of the explanation. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. I certainly um, wanted part of the the purpose of the book to be to draw attention to the taxpaying experience of most Americans, which is not all about April 15th every year. Um, although actually that is can be a, a real boon to low-income families. Um, but yeah, I think that rightly or wrongly, uh, Americans see taxpaying as this important responsibility that's part that's tied up with being a citizen. In fact, that's something that's uh, lasted throughout our history. Uh, a piece of work that I have not yet done, but a sort of a follow-on to the book, is looking at how taxpayers have been represented throughout American history, going back, obviously, to the founding uh, and you know taxation and representation. But if you look at the women's movement, if you look at the civil rights movement, if you look at uh, immigrants' right mo- rights movements today, Uh, People who have been refused the status of citizen or full citizen often describe themselves as taxpayer and use that status as sort of a, a way of advocating for more complete representation. So I think it's a really important part of our history.
Absolutely, and I'm reminded of uh, of a discussion I had with a, um, a woman on the city council of San Antonio, where they work without pay. And uh, you often hear from constituents, you know, I pay your salary, and she'd have to remind people, actually, you don't. I volunteer in this capacity, but nonetheless, you are my constituent. I take your view seriously, that sort of thing. But you hear that constantly from people who are frustrated with their elected officials of, I pay the bills around here. And, and to some extent, you know, they're certainly right. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is good for uh, Americans to think about taxes as the part of their labor that they contribute to the public good. I think that is a powerful way to think. But you have to remember everyone else is chipping in too. I mean, you pay a very marginal amount of any civil servants taxes, right? And it doesn't actually matter how much you're paying because uh, you're you know, a citizen and a resident and you deserve to be heard. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think that there is something powerful in the American psyche about the idea that this is the part of my work that I gave to all of us. One of the powerful ideas that seems not to go away and is very important is is correlated with race. And one of the findings that that you had, which I did not find surprising, unfortunately, is that um, there is a correlation between people who are anti-African-American, who uh, presumably were willing to tell surveys um, or otherwise be open with those views, and uh, being anti-tax. And in some ways, it actually seems like it fits because it also seems like anti-American, and at least the the America that I want to live in. Yeah, I mean, this is a... A, a long trend in American history. I told the positive story a second ago about the women's movement, the civil rights movement, right? But the counter movements to all of those movements also talked about taxes. You see anti-immigrant activists talk all the time about, oh, they're here, they're not paying taxes, which is not true and is in fact, you know, my book has a lot of counterintuitive findings, but the one that I have consistently had a hard time convincing people who don't agree with me on is that undocumented people pay taxes. And that's just a fact. Like, that's not a complicated fact. There are dollars in the Treasury that are the result of undocumented people paying taxes. A lot of those dollars, right? This is not nearly as controversial or or complicated as anything else I work on, but it is so hard to convince people of that. For my job applications, I never saw an opportunity in the I-9 or whatever the form was to check off the I-4. I forget what it is. You know, I am an undocumented immigrant, therefore don't do any withholding. Yeah, I mean, the withholding, particularly payroll taxes, uh, Social Security benefits, which undocumented people do not qualify, but for which they chip in, they're actually helping keep Social Security afloat right now. Sales taxes obviously apply to anyone who's in the country at the time and in a store. You know, these are not taxes that are avoidable. And so this is uh, a real situation, I think, in which it's sad to discover as a researcher and as a political scientist that, you know, I can I can come with my pie chart, but it doesn't actually defeat racism, you know? And that's been that that is the most disappointing aspect, I think, of the of the work that I did. There's so there was so much positivity and so much to be hopeful about. But the the strength of anti-immigrant sentiment and the the racism that's embedded in that is, you know, I think maybe the great challenge we face. In your research um, in in, in surveying other research in this matter, have you seen anything that helps to to deal with that? I mean, uh, in the the specific tax space, I I don't want to get into fields that you're not as much of an expert in. Yeah, so I think that on the subject of changing attitudes about taxation, one thing that has at least shown some effect uh, is giving people more information about the taxes they pay. Right. So there have been experiments done, for instance, in providing people, you may have even received one of these, with a statement that told you how much you'd paid into Social Security and how much you could expect to benefit later. There were these green statements that were handed out for a couple of years. The program was unfortunately ended. Um, but they randomized it. So you could actually measure whether people who had received these statements knew more and felt better about things, or worse for that matter. Um, and what they found was that if you'd gotten these statements, you were better informed about Social Security and you felt more positively about the program. So there 
there are ways in which you know government can sort of be respectful to the people who have chipped in all this cash uh, and tell them more about where that money is going, and that may help. But I think you know th- there's a really long and and dark you know, history uh, in this country regarding our capacity to see each other as uh, fellow citizens. And, you know, an example of that, if you go back even to the the end of the Reconstruction, the redemption governments that came into place, the white supremacist governments that came into place at the end of this sort of period of progressive increases in equality uh, across the South, uh, those governments described themselves as rule of the taxpayer, right? And what they meant by that was uh, rule by white plantation owners. And so... Um, I'm not sure that the language of taxpaying is the answer, but I'm sure it's the field on which uh, our fights about who counts as a citizen are going to be fought. One of the hopes that I've had in terms of recent technological fixes is video games, in particular participatory budgeting type stuff where one can try to play around with a budget. Public radio has sometimes hosted these on websites and it helped people to get a better sense of where their money's going. Uh, Is there any hope for that or is that something that was just a fad five years ago and has disappeared? I don't know. Um, I'm a Luddite myself, so I tend to be suspicious of all technological solutions, uh, including the ones that I eventually can't do without. So... I'm perhaps not the person to ask, but I will say that I think that all endeavors that are directed towards better informing the American citizenry are at least worth trying, right? And particularly when they come from the perspective of that the problems that we face as a country come from a a shortage of democracy, a shortage of, you know, deliberative, uh, deep democracy, as opposed to uh, a problem of uh, people participating too much, and we should just leave it all to the experts. Uh, to the extent that we are experimenting with new ways to engage people in the politics that genuinely does shape their lives, I think it's worth trying. And so as we wrap up, um, I'm curious if you would agree then that um, you know, for people who, for instance, uh, the people who might think that the future of solving healthcare might involve more government and perhaps higher taxes, uh, for people who, um, I actually think we can um, solve rural broadband while lowering the tax burden effectively because we have misspent so much money in terms of um, the the subsidies to the big companies um, in phasing it out, I think. Um, but nonetheless, for people who might think that we have to spend more, whether on the federal or the local level, your impression is that people would be receptive to that if they had a faith that the money was going to be well spent, is, is my impression at least, that people don't feel like they couldn't possibly live if their taxes went up. Well, I mean, one piece of evidence that suggests that that's the case is if you look at state ballot measures, right? So these are measures that the at the state level, if you're from California like I am, you are very familiar with ballot measures. Other states also use them. Uh, these are, I looked at every state ballot measure that was intended to raise taxes. And uh, 40 years ago, if you put a measure on the ballot to raise taxes, you had about a one in five chance of that measure passing. This is These are pretty bad odds, right? Now, in the last 15 years, if you put a measure on a state ballot uh, anywhere in the country that has them, you have about a one in two chance of that measure passing, which is extremely good by ballot measure standards, right? You know, and this has been a, a really steady increase over 40 years. So I think what what we're seeing is that if you actually ask voters, hey, and you have to go to the voters and say, hey, I want to uh, protect our uh, nurses and teachers, it's going to cost you know, an extra 0.25 cents at the, when you buy things at the store, uh, or I want to protect nurses and teachers, it's going to involve an increase in our top income tax rate. Uh, people sometimes say yes to that. 
in fact, far more often than you might imagine. So I think, again, it's sort of evidence that if we're looking at why our politics don't reflect most Americans' views on taxation, uh, the problem is the is in the systems, not in the people. Well, I think that's right. And, and I think it's worth noting there's hope out there. And it's in some ways an incentive to get it right. Because if, if we fail to enact the programs that we want to build the society we want to live in, it's not because it was preordained, because we live in a country that's anti-tax. It's because maybe we didn't do a good enough job and we need to work hard at making sure that we get the things that we want. Yeah, I think that that's right. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That was Vanessa Williamson joining Christopher Mitchell from the Community Broadband Networks Initiative here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is episode 41 of the Building Local Power podcast. Please take a moment to help us continue to bring high-quality guests like Vanessa to you through this commercial-free podcast by donating at ilsr.org donate. We encourage you to also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook and to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcasts, Local Energy Rules and the Community Broadband Bits podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. Thanks to Dysfunction Al for the music license through Creative Commons. The song is Funk Interlude. I'm Lisa Gonzalez from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Thank you for listening to episode 41 of the Building Local Power podcast.